All right, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with them now to the book of Genesis. We continue in our study through this book. And last week, we were in Genesis chapter 14. We covered the first 16 verses that presented to us the story of Abraham. He's listed as Abram now. He doesn't become Abraham until uh, chapter 17, but we're going to call him Abraham. The story of Abraham's uh, miraculous rescue of his son, uh, his, his nephew Lot, out of the grips of this invading army that came down from north of the river Euphrates, led by that evil king, Ketelomer. And last week, we noted that there was both a moralistic application and a redemptive application to that. And, and we'll continue to see that as we go through the book of Genesis. The moral application last week was that like Abraham, we too should look to help those who need help. Those um, in and around us in our lifetime and in our world who need rescue, who need to be helped. And, and parenthetically, that we should seek to help them even if they don't deserve to be helped, like Lot. He didn't deserve to be helped, but Abraham graciously, mercifully went on a rescue mission to help him. The redemptive application was that we saw in Abraham's rescue of Lot a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ's rescue of us from captivity. In that sense, we saw in Abraham, at least in that part of chapter 14, a type of Christ. His rescue of undeserving Lot from the captivity of the northern um, armies was foreshadowing and was likened to Jesus Christ's rescue of undeserving us from the grip of our captivity to sin and death. And, and it was through that typology of Christ in those first 16 verses that we found ourselves identifying more with Lot, at least in that part of the chapter, than with Abraham. We are the undeserving ones. We are the undeserving who need rescue. And Jesus is the one who left heaven on a rescue mission to reclaim us from captivity, just as Abraham left Canaan on a rescue mission to reclaim his nephew, Lot. Well, in this week's passage, in verses 17 through 24, we're going to see two more types. One of them is another type of Christ, but the other one is a type of Satan. So we're going to pick up the story immediately after Abraham's victory, after his defeat of the coalition of northern armies, he returns back to the area near Jerusalem, and we pick up the story in verse 17. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures, verse 17 through verse 24 of Genesis 14. This is the word of God. After his return from the defeat of Ketelomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but the, what, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Father, it's been a privilege this morning to worship you with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this precious gift this morning to sing praises to you and to be reminded of who you are and our great privilege to sing and live lives of worship to you. We ask now that you'd speak to us from your word. We want to return thanks to you for this book. We thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in this, and preserved it throughout the ages so that we can know it to be the very breath of God. We ask that you speak to us from it, that you would help us to understand it and help us to apply it to our lives so that you would be glorified in us, in our church, in our families as we seek to live on mission for you in this world that you've sent us to. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. So as the story goes, Abram defeats Ketelomer and the invading armies and kings from the north. And upon returning to the Jordan River Valley, which is where they are here in this story, two kings come out to meet him, presumably to honor him, to to thank him for the victory that he won over the invaders. The first king that comes out to meet him is the king of Sodom. If you recall from the first 16 verses, we're told in that part of chapter 14 that his name is Bera, Bera, king of Sodom. The other king that comes out to meet him is the king of Salem, this mysterious character known as Melchizedek. And he wasn't mentioned at all in the earlier chapter. In the earlier part of chapter 14 where Moses lists all the different kings, so many of them that that he lists there that we got tongue-tied trying to read the Hebrew. But we read through all those kings and this king of Salem wasn't there. He wasn't part of that. So mysteriously, he shows up here in verse uh, 17 through 14. So these two kings go out to meet Abraham as he returns from battle. But as we'll see, they have very different motives. And they have very different ways of honoring Abraham for the victory. The first one is king of Sodom. King of Sodom comes out first, or at least... He's mentioned first by Moses. But what's interesting is that what he says to Abraham comes second. Now that's interesting because in Hebrew literature, what comes in the middle of a story is what's most important. So oftentimes you'll see this structure where things on the outside of the story are pointing into what's in the middle. So we, so we hear about King of Sodom coming first, but he doesn't speak until after the encounter with Melchizedek. And so Moses is telling us here by using that Hebrew structure of the story that the encounter with Melchizedek is what's critical in this particular story. So let's cover that encounter first. We're introduced to Melchizedek in verse 18. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God most high. So immediately we're told several things that are important about Melchizedek that we should note about him. Number one, he, like the king of Sodom, he is a king. He's the king of Salem. Now the word Salem in Hebrew means peace. It is the Hebrew word shalem, 
which we probably recognize more by its noun form, shalom, which means in Hebrew peace or wholeness, the state of being made whole or being made complete. This is the adjective form, shalem. Now, this ancient city of Salem would later become known as Jerusalem. That's what the city is. And so this Melchizedek guy is the king of Salem. He's also the king of Jerusalem. And you, kinda, you hear the similarities in the, the, the name of the city. Salem, or Shalem, became Jerusalem. And it's even more pronounced in the Hebrew. Shalem became Yerushalem. Yeru meaning uh, foundation or teaching, and shalom meaning peace. So uh, the word for Jerusalem means the, the, the teaching or the foundation of peace, where peace comes from. And so he's telling us here that this Melchizedek is the king of peace. He's the king of peace, but he's also the king of righteousness. His name, the name itself, Melchizedek, is a duel in Hebrew. Melech means king, and Sadek, Sadek, means righteousness. And so he is both the king of peace and he is the king of righteousness. The second thing that we're told here is that he, he brings food to Abraham. He brings out bread and wine to serve to Abraham as he returns from battle. In 1 Samuel, when Jesse, the father of David, this David who would later become king, his father Jesse at one point sends David to the front lines with a gift basket for King Saul. And that gift basket of food, a meal for the king, includes bread and wine. Now, some commentators have concluded from this that this then would be a very appropriate gift to be presented to a king, a gift of bread and wine. And that's a, that's a reasonable conclusion. Certainly, if nothing else, it's a, it's a meal. It's a show of honor. It's a show of thanks to this one who has um, accomplished this victory over the invading army. But we should also see here the symbolism of bread and wine. Bread and wine should be keenly reminiscent to us of the elements of the Lord's Supper, of communion, where the body or the the bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus, and the wine represents his shed blood, shed for the forgiveness of man's sins. Now, for the Israelites, centuries, centuries later, uh, centuries earlier, reading this, um, as they're hearing the story about Abram and Melchizedek, as they're, as they're reading this historical account that Moses wrote down while they're wandering the wilderness, centuries later after this was written, as they're, as they're reading about this story, they, they would be reminded of the Passover meal. The Passover meal was a ceremonial and symbolic meal that was instituted by God to commemorate the delivery of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And in that meal, the unleavened bread represented the urgency with which the Israelites needed to make haste and leave under cover of darkness on the night of the final plague, the angel of death. And so they served unleavened bread. God instituted this in Exodus chapter 19. And so their mind would have gone back to that. 
And while there's no wine in the actual Exodus 19 institution of the Passover meal, we know that at least by the time of Jesus, presumably much earlier, wine was a very important part of the meal because the wine in the Passover meal, as Jesus is serving it to the disciples in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed, he used wine to symbolically refer to his blood as he uses the Passover meal to institute the Lord's Supper for Christians. And so that ceremonial and symbolic Passover meal would have been fresh on the minds of the Israelites as they read this story, as they heard about this historical account when Melchizedek serves bread and wine to Abram here. They, they, they certainly would have been thinking of the Passover meal and, and they would recall Yahweh's miraculous deliverance of them out of slavery in Egypt. And Scripture's foreshadowing, using the Passover meal to foreshadow the Lord's Supper, should also cause us to see a foreshadowing of Christ here when Melchizedek serves bread and wine to Abraham. Then there's a third thing that we are told about Melchizedek here in verse 18. First of all, that he's a king. Second of all, he serves bread and wine to Abraham. But thirdly, we're also told that he's a priest. The end of verse 18 says, he was priest of God most high. Now, this is the first mention of a priest in Scripture. In the Bible, this is the first time we hear about a priest. Now, presumably there were priests of God before this uh, because we don't see the definite article right there before the word priest. He doesn't say he was the priest of God most high. He was a priest The definite article is not there. So presumably there were other priests, but they're not spoken of. This is the first time we hear about a priest in the Bible. Now, we, with our background in Protestantism, we have a hard time understanding what is a priest? Because we don't have priests today. We don't utilize priests today. But Roman Catholicism does. And so a lot of times Roman, Roman Catholics will understand what is this priest a little bit better than Protestants might. A Catholic priest is the go-between between God and man. A priest represents God to man and represents man to God. He is, in a sense, a mediator between God and man. Like Melchizedek, the priest is the only one who can serve communion. Because in a sense, it's as if God has given the body and blood of Christ to the priest, and then the priest gives and presents the body and blood to the people. So a priest is a a mediator, one who acts as a go-between between God and man. And that's what this Melchizedek is. He is a king, but he is also a priest. And I hope as we As we look at verse 18, we we began to put a picture together of who this Melchizedek character is, that we should see that this too is a type of Christ, that we see in this Melchizedek character a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Melchizedek, Jesus also is our King of peace and our King of righteousness. He is the one who has earned peace, who has, who has uh, purchased peace with God through his shed blood on the cross. 
He is our king of righteousness. He is the one who has achieved righteousness through a perfect fulfillment of the law, something that we could never do. And that by faith in him, we can have peace with God because his righteousness is credited to us by grace through faith in Christ. And so he is our king of peace. He's our king of righteousness. Jesus also, like Melchizedek, serves us bread and wine as he offers up his body on the cross and his shed blood for the sins of man as our sacrifice. And Jesus also, obviously, is our priest. He is the only mediator. There is no need for any other mediator. This is why there are no, there, there are no priests in Judaism to this day. They don't, they don't have priests today because they don't need priests today. There is a mediator between God and man, the person, Jesus Christ. He mediates our reconciliation to God through his sacrifice. So this typology that we see this week in Melchizedek as a type of Christ is much easier to see than the typology that we saw last week of Abram as a type of Christ. But the reason why this one is is much easier to see is because Scripture itself attests to that fact in both the, the book of Psalms and the book of Hebrews. In fact, I want you to listen to Psalm 110, the first four verses. Now, if you go and you look at that psalm in your Bible, uh, the heading of that psalm says, a psalm of David. Now, the, the headings that we see in the psalms like that, a psalm of David, a psalm of uh, Asaph or, or whatever, or for the choir master, anything like that, that's actually a part of the original text of the psalms. That's a part of divinely inspired scripture. And so, When we do that, we should say that, just like we do. I love how our worship team, when they're reading Scripture, they say the word Selah. You know what Selah means in Hebrew? Neither do I. Nobody knows what the word Selah means. Presumably, it has something to do with with putting those psalms to music and singing them as a song. That's just a guess, though. We We don't know. But they're in the Scripture. They're in the divinely inspired word. And so we we say them as a matter of course. The same is true with the headings. Now, the title of the psalm in my Bible, the title of Psalm 110 is Sit at My Right Hand. That is not divinely inspired. That's kind of like the titles that we have of various sections of Scripture and chapters in the New Testament and so forth. That's not divinely inspired. But the heading, a psalm of David, is divinely inspired, and it's important. Why is it important? Glad you asked. I know that's a long explanation. But to know that this is a psalm, that the psalm itself tells us is written by David, is very important in this particular psalm. It helps us with interpreting what is meant. So what does the psalm say? It begins in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Now that's where the heading is going to help us. Who's my? My is David. And so David says here that the Lord, Yahweh, says to his Lord, who is his Lord? He's talking about Christ here. He's talking about the anointed Son of God. And so Psalm 110 is the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to his anointed Son. And so what does he say to him? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer them free, themselves freely on the day of your, of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then verse 4, here's the critical part. The Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's King David, a thousand years after Moses writes about Melchizedek in Genesis 14, David writes about how the anointed son of David, who will sit on the throne of David forever, the son of God, the Christ, David says of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then another thousand years later, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110 and says the very same thing. Hebrews 7 verse 17 says, for it is witnessed of him, speaking of Jesus, it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews actually quotes that particular verse, Psalm 110 verse 4, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but four different times in that book. So the Christological typology here of this character Melchizedek, the king of Salem, as a type of Christ, as this incomplete representation, this, this prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, pointing forward to him is clear in Genesis 14 because it's made explicit for us both in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, um, the whole point that the writer of Hebrews is making there is that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to all of the other. He's a, he's a much greater priest than the priest that the Israelites know about and are, and are accustomed to. He's, he's making that argument there in those chapters. His point is that Jesus is a superior priest. And he uses David's word from Psalm 110 in four different places to help him demonstrate that superiority. In fact, we learn more about Melchizedek as a person and as a priest in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 than we do in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, he just, he just shows up. And we're just told that he was a priest. But in Hebrews, particularly chapter 7 of Hebrews, we're told what kind of priest that he is. And so I would encourage you in your own time to read through all of Hebrews chapter 7. In fact, um, in, in your base group time, I'm encouraging you to read through that um, this week and to make some notes about that and the differences between the Melchizedek priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. But I just want to point out three of them uh, from Hebrews 7 this morning that um, are uh, particularly important for what we're talking about. Uh, the first is what we learn about the priesthood of Melchizedek is that it is superior. It's superior to the Levitical priesthood. Um, the writer of Hebrews' whole point in those chapters is to point out the superiority of Jesus as our high priest. Because the, the Hebrews, the, book that, the, the folks that that book is written to, they have a place marker for a priest, right? They can go to the temple. They can see the priest. They know about the high priest. And so Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell them, listen, Jesus is our high priest, but he is a much greater high priest. So how does he do that? He does that by demonstrating the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood over against the Levitical priesthood. And then, in that same passage, four different times, as we've noted, he says Jesus is from the Levitical priesthood. Even as King David told us, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so, that's how he shows that Jesus is a greater high priest, by showing that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior 
to the Levitical priesthood. The second thing that we learn in that chapter is that the Melchizedek priesthood is eternal. It has no end. It, it, it lasts forever. That quotation from Psalm 110 that's quoted four times in Hebrews tells us as much. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because the Melchizedek priesthood was eternal. The Levitical priesthood was not eternal, either for individuals or for the whole order of the Levitical priesthood. Individual Levitical priests, they were priests for their lifetime. They didn't continue on as priests after they died. But the order itself, the Levitical priesthood, had a time. As we mentioned earlier, they don't have priests over there now. They don't have priests in Jerusalem who are offering sacrifices. They don't even have a temple to offer sacrifices in. So the Levitical priesthood was for a time, but the Melchizedek priesthood is eternal. The first five verses of Hebrews chapter 7, in fact, I want to go ahead and read those to you. First uh, four verses of Hebrews chapter 7 uh, spells this out very specifically. The writer of Hebrews says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, I don't think this means that Melchizedek, the person that we see in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, was an eternal being in the sense that he never died or that he didn't have a mom or dad. It's that there is no genealogy of him. He's this mysterious character. There's no mention of his mother or his father. There's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. He just shows up on the scene. The first Melchizedek, and, and we, have to be, we have to be careful here because otherwise we're going to assume that Melchizedek is some kind of deity or pre-incarnate Christ. And we run into that when we don't understand what typology is. The, the, the type is, a, is an incomplete picture of the antitype. It, it is an is a incomplete, fuzzy foreshadowing of the complete picture that is to come. So, the, the first Melchizedek is the type. Jesus Christ is the antitype. The former is an incomplete represent, representation of the latter. What comes first is likened unto what comes later, but it's not an exact copy. It is a type. So Melchizedek was a man. He, he was a man who lived in the time of Abram. He was a king and he was a priest. But I believe he had a mom and he had a dad. He had a beginning and he had an end. It's just not recorded for us in Scripture. But the, priest of, the priesthood of Melchizedek was eternal because the anointed son of God has existed for all times. He did not have a beginning. He did not have an end. The, the, the anointed son of God, who is after the order of Melchizedek, he existed long before this guy Melchizedek showed up in Genesis chapter 14. And he continues to remain a priest today. So the priesthood of Melchizedek is eternal. Some people have, have gotten confused about this and concluded that, well, this means that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ, or he's some kind of deity. He couldn't have been the pre-incarnate Christ, or else King David and the writer of Hebrews would not have referred to him as one who is, who is after the order of Melchizedek. Instead, they would have said he was Melchizedek. 
So he's not the pre-incarnate Christ, neither is he a deity. There, there, there was a heresy that came up around the third century that, that presumed from this that Melchizedek was a god, that he was a deity that was greater even than Jesus Christ. And they were known creatively as Melchizedekians, and they were messed up. They were heretics. But the priesthood of Melchizedek was eternal, whereas the Levitical priesthood was not And then the third thing that we note here is that the Melchizedek priesthood was instituted by an oath. That's how you got to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is through an oath. And the writer of Hebrews, when you read through that, he makes it very, very clear that this Melchizedek came into the priesthood through an oath. Now, the Levitical priesthood was not instituted by an oath. Instead, it was inherited. If you were a man, you were born into the tribe of Levi, You got no choice. You were going to be a priest. That was going to be your job. You were going to work in the temple. You were going to offer sacrifices. And so there was was no choice about that whatsoever. It was based on birthright. But the priesthood of Melchizedek was not inherited. Instead, it was by an oath, by swearing an oath of being willing to serve in that capacity as a go-between between God and man as a mediator for the people. Levitical priesthood didn't have a choice. They just were born into it. But apparently, the priesthood of Melchizedek was by choice. And if you chose to do it, if you agreed to do it, then you were not born into it, you were sworn into it. And so this Melchizedek was sworn into it at some point. He took this oath. Well, was Jesus sworn into this priesthood? Absolutely, he was. And we see it explicitly in chapter 7, verse 21 of Hebrews. When the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, for the last time, he says this. But this one, speaking of Jesus, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn. That's the language of making an oath there. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So so we see in this Melchizedek character a beautiful picture of our Redeemer, our Rescuer, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. But what did Melchizedek do to honor Abram here when he meets him in the valley of Shavah? As we read this text, we realize that he didn't so much honor Abraham as he did remind Abraham that he was blessed by God Most High. Look what he says to Abraham in verses 19 and 20. And Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham. By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, Melchizedek tells Abraham, Abraham, you're blessed by God most high. And God most high has delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, Abraham, you are blessed. But you're not blessed because you're a great warrior. And you're not blessed because you're some great military strategist. You're blessed because God Most High was on your side. And you're blessed because he gave you this miraculous victory. Melchizedek is praising God here. He's blessing God. And he's leading Abram to do the same. Just as a priest should. As priest, he is directing Abram's attention to the one who deserves all the credit for this victory. He's making the glory of God the focus of Abraham's attention here. Just in case Abram 
was under the false impression that maybe he deserved some of the credit here, that he, he turned out to be this great military strategist, that he was able somehow to pull these 318 men together, and it was through sheer might and, and, and human force that he was able to overcome this enormous coalition of armies from the north. Just in case he was under that false impression, Melchizedek is there to remind him that no, God most high is the one who deserves the credit for this victory. Abram is learning an important lesson here, one that he'll have to relearn and one that will be tested for him in the next few verses. And that lesson is give God all the credit, give God all the glory because he deserves it. And take none of the glory, take none of the credit for yourself because you don't deserve it. God has done this for you. And so what was Abram's response to all of this? The end of verse 20 says, and Abram gave a tenth of everything. And so Abram has this encounter with this king of the east, this, this, uh, excuse me, this king priest Melchizedek, who was a foreshadowing of the son of the most high God who was to come. He has this encounter, and this encounter ends with Abram giving Melchizedek a, a tenth of everything. This is the first mention of a tithe in Scripture. Tithe means tenth in Hebrew. And so this is the first mention of it, and we should note that it's a, t- it's a tenth of everything. And everything includes the spoils of war that have come back to Abram now. And he gives a tenth of all of that, all that he has, and all that, he's, that has come back to him now as the victor of the spoils. He now gives a tenth of that back to Melchizedek. This was Abraham acknowledging a couple of things. Acknowledging, first of all, that Melchizedek is his superior. According to to Jewish custom, the superior is the one who blesses the inferior. That's how blessings go. Blessings come from from the superior to the inferior. And then the inferior pays homage back to the superior with some kind of um, homage or honoring. So Melchizedek here is blessing Abram, showing that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And then Abraham is, is giving a tenth, paying homage back to Melchizedek, showing the same. Now, as we look through the Old Testament, as we, as we think through ancient Jewish t- history, it's very hard for us to imagine anyone, anyone being superior to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation. He's father Abraham. No one can be superior to him. But this mysterious character, Melchizedek, this obscure king of Salem who wasn't even worth mentioning back when we were talking about all the kings of Canaan over the, over the war and the battle for Canaan, this obscure character is superior to Abraham, which should likewise point to the fact that Jesus is superior. The superiority of Jesus above all gods and all priests and all kings and all persons. But also here, Abram giving a tenth to Melchizedek is demonstrating that Abram knows that all that he has, including the spoils, all of his resources, all of it belongs to God. That he's simply a steward. He's simply a a manager of this. And so he's giving a tenth of it to Melchizedek, showing that he believes that Yahweh, God Most High, 
owns all of this. And so he demonstrates that by giving a tenth of it. That's what we do when we bring our offerings to God. When we tithe or we give to the church, we are demonstrating that we know that all of our resources both come from God and belong to God. And we're not the owner, we're simply the managers. We're the stewards. And we demonstrate that by giving a portion of that, a tenth or a tithe, an offering, if you will, back to God. And then we're also committing that we're going to manage the remaining 90% wisely and discerningly as a good steward would. So that's his encounter with Melchizedek. Before we move on to some application, let's, talk, let's look at his encounter with the king of Sodom. While Melchizedek here is put forward as a type of Christ, the king of Sodom is put forth as a type of Satan, or at least a type of the temptation of worldliness to draw our affections away from God and to the things of the world. So what does the king of Sodom say to Abraham? Look at verse 21. The king of Sodom says to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So immediately we see what's on his mind, right? We see what he's thinking about. He's thinking about money. He's thinking about possessions. He's thinking about wealth. He's thinking about power. This is what's on his mind. His motive is not to honor Abraham, is not to thank Abraham, but instead his motive is to get his hands on as much of the spoils as he possibly can. And so he comes up with a strategy to maximize his take. And he suggests to Abraham, listen, you keep all the goods, and the goods would include everything except the people. It would include the livestock, all of that, the, 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 the wealth, the gold, the silver, including the, the cows and sheep and donkeys, all of that. But you, you keep all of that, Abram, and just give me the people. Now to us in 21st century America, that kind of seems fair, right? He's going to get all that stuff, and all this king of Sodom wants is the people. That, that almost sounds generous to us, right? But it's because we don't live in a time and culture that is ruled by what is known as the right of conquest. And, and the right of conquest, which, which ruled these sorts of battles and how the outcome were, was to be determined, the right of conquest said, to the victor go the spoils. If you win, you get their stuff. And so all of this stuff belongs to Abraham. They were his, the people and the possessions. None of it belonged to the king of Sodom. None of it was his. Who was king of Sodom in this story? He was the defeated king. He's one of those guys in those, those, uh, those pits of bitumen as we read about in the first 16 verses of chapter 14. He was down in the tar pits. He had been defeated by Ketalomer and the kings of the north. And as a defeated king, he deserved none of this. None of this stuff was his. And so it's not as though we look at this and see, oh, look, look at this king of Sodom. He's being fair here. He's asking only for what's fair. No, he's asking for something that doesn't belong to him. He's asking for something that he doesn't deserve here. He's trying to weasel his way in here so that he can reclaim some of, this, some of the spoils. And if nothing less, if nothing less, maybe... Maybe he can form an alliance with this Abraham who clearly, who clearly is powerful in this land. So maybe he can form an alliance with him. That's what was on his mind. The stuff did not belong to him. So he wasn't asking Abraham for something that was fair. He's asking for something that he didn't deserve. This stuff all belonged to Abraham by right of conquest. But 
Abram knew, even though it was his by right of conquest, he knew it was dirty money. He knew it was dirty money. And even though he, he legally had the right to it, keeping the spoils of war, particularly in this instance, was morally ambiguous, at least, at the very least. And Abram has learned his lesson, thanks to uh, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, reminding him that it's all about the glory of God. So, so Abram has, has learned his lesson here to, to give all the glory to God, to give all the credit to him for any good that happens. And so he doesn't want to keep any of the credit to himself. He, he doesn't want to keep any of the glory. And he certain, certainly doesn't want the word to go out that, that um, he is the one. Look at him. Look at Abram, this rich guy. Look at, look at what he's accomplished, that he, that he should get the credit and the glory in this case. Having experienced God's miraculous deliverance and miraculous intervention and taking this ragtag group of 318 men with Abram and defeating the vast coalition of armies from the north, having just experienced that, Abram now is more concerned with God's glory than with his own glory. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want to benefit from this victory at all as if it, he was the reason for the triumph. And so... But Abram knows about Sodom. He knows about that city. He knows what goes on there. He knows, as, as Moses said back in chapter 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The, the cities of the plain where Lot ended up settling were very wealthy, but they were also very wicked and depraved. And those two don't always go together. So we don't draw a, a, an equivalence there that along with wealth goes depravity. But in this case, it did. It's a very wealthy city there. That's why Lot went there. That's why Lot settled there. But it was also a very depraved city, and a very wicked city. So to Abram, this proposal from the king of Sodom, he, he looked at that as if it was a temptation from the world. And potentially a temptation to enter into an unholy alliance with the king of Sodom, something that would come back to haunt him later. And he certainly did not want to put himself in any kind of position where he was indebted to the king of Sodom. And so he responds appropriately in verses 22 through 24. It says, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but the, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram rejects this deal. He rejects the offer, the proposal from the king of Sodom. He says, I'm not even going to take a single thread from a single garment. I'm not even going to take the, the strap of a sandal. I'm not going to take anything from you, king of Sodom. He resists the temptation from the world, which should be reminiscent to us of Jesus' resisting the temptation of the world from Satan when he's tempted by Satan in the desert in Luke chapter 2. He also refuses to be unequally yoked with Sodom. He, he doesn't want to be connected at all with the depravity and the sin and the ugliness and the evil of that city. To him, an alliance between him and the king of Sodom would be 
would be like an alliance between the God most high and the depravity of man. And Abram just wouldn't have it. So he relinquishes any claim to credit for the victory. And why does he do this? Because as he said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. Now what does that mean? Now, he doesn't mean he's raising his hands in worship. This is not Abram getting Pentecostal here. But what he's saying here, when he says, I, I have raised my hand to the Lord most high, most high, what he means is I'm taking a stand, and I'm going to be all about the glory of God from now on. That, that, that's, that's the equivalent for us. When he says, I've raised my hand, he's like, I'm taking a stand. And I'm going to be all about the glory of God from now. I've made a commitment to follow Jesus I'm going to do things God's way. That's what he's saying to the king of Sodom. He's telling him, I belong to Lord Most High. I am his, and he is mine, and he is enough, and I don't need any of this stuff. I don't need any of this dirty money, and I don't need an alliance with you, king of Sodom, that's going to come back to haunt me later. And so he rejects it, and he takes a stand for the glory of God, and not to take any credit for himself, and not to get entangled with the ways of the world. So what do we learn from this? What do, how do we apply uh, this particular passage? Two particular applications I want, want you to think about and in your base group uh, talk about. One is that we should learn from this to give God all the glory and take none for ourselves. Every day we find ourselves in the valley with two kings on either side. And one of those kings will try to convince us to take credit for our own victories. You did it. You overcame. Good for you. You deserve this. And the other king will remind us that the Lord deserves all the credit. One will say, look what you accomplished for yourself. And the other will say, look what the Father has done for you. And we'll need to see that Taking some of the credit for ourselves is really robbing the credit from God and robbing the glory from God. And robbing the glory from God is what the enemy is all about. It's what he's always been about. It's robbing God of his glory, taking away from that. So let us, church, raise our hand to the Lord and recognize that it's only by his grace that we even breathe. And anything good that happens to us, it is because of his graciousness, his kindness, and his love towards us, his generosity towards us. And so, whatever it is, all glory be to God. All credit be to God. But secondly, as we see this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in this priest-king Melchizedek here in Genesis 14, our affections, just as they were last week, our affections should be drawn to love and honor and serve and worship Jesus above, above all else. And so a closing application would be that in response to this, we should worship Jesus as our high priest and conquering king. He is our high priest. He's our mediator. He is the one who has come from perfect heaven to represent God to us and then to represent us to God. And he has served us bread and wine by offering his body on the cross and by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so we praise him as our mediator even today. And if you're here this morning, you've never 
professed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your go-between, as your priest, your only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve because of our sin against God, then you have no mediator. There is no go-between. There is no priest to, to represent you to him. But that's why God sent Jesus to be that mediator, to be that representation of God to us, and then based on, on our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, then to represent us to God. And so let's embrace him as our high priest, but let's also embrace him as our conquering king. He is both our king of peace and our king of righteousness. Through his shed blood on the cross, he conquered sin and death forever. He said himself, it is finished. Nothing, nothing else remains to be done to achieve peace with a holy God for sinful man. But he's also our king of righteousness. He lived the perfect life that maybe some of you are still trying to live. You're trying to earn righteousness. You're trying to earn that justification to make yourself good enough. But the, the scriptures tell us that we can never make ourselves good enough. That's why Jesus, the king of righteousness, was sent. Because he achieved that righteousness. And by faith in him, his righteousness is credited to us so that when we become before, come before our maker, the possessor of heaven and earth, and we have to give an answer for our sins, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he sees on Jesus our sins, the punishment of our sins that have been dealt with and paid for. And so we trust him each and every day to continue to keep us in that place of seeing him as our great king of peace and king of righteousness until he brings us home. Let's pray.